All right, James chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in, don't feel convicted yet. And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Verse 5, listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. But if you show partiality... You are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act. We talked about that last week. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty, for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Another word for mercy is compassion. Compassion triumphs over judgment. So, I want us to talk about this, and I'd love to set it up with a silly story. Anybody ever heard of Silly Songs with Larry? A little VeggieTales reference. Okay, silly stories with Travis. Okay, let's just go there. All right. Um, So I'm a sports guy. I like sports. Okay. Hi, my name's Travis. I like sports. Okay, it felt like that was a confession moment right there. Okay. Um, One of the sports that I'm less interested in, uh, if, if we're being honest, is hockey. I grew up in North Carolina. Okay, don't, don't judge me. We didn't have high school hockey or middle school hockey, or peewee hockey. We had football, basketball. We didn't even have lacrosse. Anyway, all right, anyway, this is not a sermon about sports. Um, but a few years ago, this, this team came on the scene in the hockey world, the Nashville Predators. And we knew somebody um, who was a big Preds fan, right? Don't you, don't you, like the team that you really don't like, and then they have that cool nickname, right? And so then it just gets under your skin a little bit more. Yeah, I cheer for the Preds. No, the Predators, right? And, and, so, and so I started, I started giving a hard time to this Nashville hockey team called the Predators because I'm like, you know, it's kind of like the Carolina Hurricanes, right? They live in Carolina. They're in Nashville. They shouldn't be good at hockey, but yet they're always in the playoffs. And right now the Hurricanes are giving Boston all that they can handle in the playoffs. But, but hopefully the Bruins can turn it around today, tie up the series, and let's go, Right? Woo! Okay, anyway, that was a little bit of a side. Now, back in January, I happened to be down in Nashville and was hanging out with a couple guys, and they said, yeah, we're going to go to a Preds game tonight. And I just kind of, oh no, right? Just kind of rolled my eyes. But I didn't have, I didn't have a choice in the matter, right? And, and so I just went to this Predators game, and to my surprise, 
It was one of the most electric. Now, this game didn't matter. This is a regular season game. They were playing a team that was subpar, and it, and it wasn't an important game. But the arena was sold out. They had a section where the first four rows were grown men, topless. It was an experience. Nashville needs Jesus. Okay? And they were the cheering section. They were the fan. And so this whole section would lead the chants and the cheers for the entire arena. They had behind one of the goals on one end a stage. And in between all the periods and at the end of the game, they had a concert. Because I don't know if you know this, but Nashville's kind of known for music. And I was like, wow, these people know how to cheer on their team. And I felt a little bad, I mean, just a little bad for judging them all those years ago the way that I judged them. Now, again, silly stories with Travis, right? I say that just to say and just to set up. We've all given judgment at times in places of things that didn't deserve our judgment. And the most tragic place where that happens, right, a hockey team, they don't care, <laughs> right? But the most tragic place that that happens is when we do that with people, is when we put people that we've never had a conversation with, we've just looked at. When we put people that we've never, that we've never seen before, and all of a sudden we see them, we put them in a class of people, or we decide in our minds immediately, I wouldn't get along with them. They're not safe people for me. I don't like them. And even more tragic is when we do that in the church. And so James, preacher James, half-brother of Jesus James, here in James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, he gives an instruction, an illustration, an explanation, and an application when it comes to judgment. And his instruction is right there in verse 1 of chapter 2. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Emphasis there at the end, Jesus the Lord of glory. Like, don't forget, as you're serving the Lord of glory, Jesus, show no partiality. So whether they're a hot coffee drinker or, or an iced coffee drinker, whether they're coffee or tea, whether they're football, you know, all the sports reference, it doesn't matter. Show no partiality. Now, let me, off, let me, let me let you off the hook for just a moment. Okay? Because, because, because this gets... This gets intense. Now, what I'm not saying is, and what Scripture is not saying is, okay, because, because this is an important disclaimer as we go through this message when it comes to mercy triumphing over judgment and all, all those different things and showing no partiality. What we're not saying, what Scripture's not saying is that you have to be besties with everyone. Okay? We, we don't have to be besties. But what Scripture is saying is do not let your judgment become a stumbling block for the gospel. I've said it before, I'll say it again. I believe that if the enemy can attack one thing in the house of God, he would attack unity. 
Because if he can divide us and get us to focus on each other and our differences within each other, our dislikes of each other, right? How this church baptizes, how this church worships, the, the songs this church sings versus the songs, the preaching of this church versus the preaching. If the enemy can get us focused on those things, guess what we're not doing? Furthering the gospel. But again, what James is not saying here is that you have to leave today and be besties with everybody. No, God, look, God designed us differently. There is only one Travis Bush, praise God, amen? There is only one. You only have to deal with and put up with one. Hallelujah. I know me. But we do have to get along and love each other for the furtherance of the gospel. Accepting one another's quirks that just drive you absolutely crazy. But that God wants to use for the furtherance of his gospel. So let's deal with the instruction here that James lays out. My brothers, show no partiality. This is the main point of his little sermonette here, verses 1 through 13 about partiality. Show no partiality as you hold the faith in Jesus. Show no partiality. Pastor James of the First Church of Jerusalem reveals, did y'all get that? That was cool, wasn't it? I like that. Uh, reveals his tenderness towards his readers when he calls them brothers. But let's deal with that for just a second because we've seen that all through chapter 1. We're going to see it for the rest of the book. Okay, he re He's revealing his tenderness. He states these brothers hold the faith. Now, what I want you to get here is that we are brothers and believers, sisters and saints, because we are in the same faith family and, don't forget this, on the same team. On the same team. There's no distinction here, sisters, as Paul makes it clear in Galatians 3.28, neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, no male nor female, you are all one in Christ Jesus. So ladies, don't feel like you're left out here in the brothers, okay? It's also translated brothers and sisters in other translations. That's just how they wrote back in this time. You're included in that, okay? And so, and so let's just get straight that. Also, let's get straight who we are. Okay? We're saved sinners. Amen? Three of you got that. Okay, good. Right? All in our brokenness, all in our humanness, we are saved sinners who are called to serve Him. And let's focus on who He is for just a second. He is the glorious Lord. James puts that very clear. Jesus Christ, in light of who He is and who we are, we're admonished, we're instructed to show no partiality. If God showed no partiality in Christ, that he died for all, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, the world meaning everyone, what right do we have to show partiality? This is in the present tense, show no partiality, which means we're to stop showing partiality. It literally means, in the Greek, to accept the face of someone. Isn't that interesting? To accept the face of someone. To accept the face of someone. Someone looked at me recently and said, my face hurts. And I was like, oh, I'm sorry. And they said, no, you missed an opportunity. You should have said, well, it's killing me. 
Man, I'm usually quicker than that, right? Usually, usually quicker than that. But what James is literally saying here is to accept the face of someone. It's the idea of turning toward the one and turning away from someone else based simply on outward appearance, economic status, skin color, or any other kind of discrimination. So I want to define some terms here because I think it's applicable when it comes to showing partiality. You good? All right, you good? All right, it's going to get deep. Here we go. All right. Favoritism is defined as giving unfair preferential treatment to one person or group at the expense of another. Let me read that again. Favoritism is giving unfair preferential treatment to one person or group at the expense of another. Who likes favoritism? Yeah, I like favoritism when I'm in the camp that's getting favored. Come on now. Be honest in church this morning. Lighten up a little bit, okay? Let's be honest. Let's, let's loosen the bow ties, Stephen, okay? All right? <clears throat> I like favoritism when I'm in the camp that's getting favored. I like when I go to certain restaurants and the cook named Paul may know me a little bit, so he'll give me more tater tots than he gives you. I like that. I don't mind that. Okay? We like favoritism when we're on the end that's being favored. Okay? When, when I'm sitting in traffic, letting out of a big event, and, and, and I've, got the, I've got the parking attendant that's going to let my line go first, but I don't mind that. I don't mind that, right? Okay. Discrimination is the practice of treating one person or group of people less fairly than other groups of people. Discrimination is the practice of treating one person or group of people less fairly than other people or groups. Now, let me, let me tell you how we do this in New England, and I know this perfectly well. The standard doorway builders is supposed to be six foot eight. Y'all went like six five. Any old construction, come on now. I know, some of these old houses up here in New England, I gotta walk around like this. Constantly, constantly. I'm making light of it, but, but just to show, a, you know, a point, right? It's a group of people, tall people. That's discrimination, okay? Short people too, I get it, I get it. I don't, I don't have experience with that one though, so I'm not going to speak to that. I was short like 40 years ago. Anyway, prejudice, prejudice comes from the words prejudge, and refers to discriminating against people solely on the basis of outward appearance. Or you could add in there, outward appearance would include skin color. And so we see that, that prejudice comes from the words prejudge. And so we prejudge, we rank somebody, like we talked about earlier, showing no partiality, based on an outward appearance, that, that we immediately see them, we don't even talk to them, we don't even have a conversation with them, but we assume things, we prejudge things based on that. And then lastly, and we'll get back to James' instruction, racism is an explicit or implicit belief, get that, explicit or implicit belief or practice that qualitatively distinguishes or values one race over other races. One race over other races. To show partiality, here's the point of giving you those definitions, okay? To show partiality is incompatible 
with our faith in Jesus. Why? Because Acts chapter 10 says that God shows no partiality. God is the ultimate umpire, according to 1 Peter 1, because he is the Father who judges impartially. As one who claims his name, he expects me to treat people fairly. As those who claim his name, he expects us to treat people fairly in love with no partiality. The Greek word no means no. And so when he says in James chapter 2, verse 1, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith, as you walk in faith in Jesus. Show no partiality. Leviticus 19.15 says, you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. Warren Wearsby nails it. When he says, the way we behave toward people indicates what we really believe about God. The way that we behave towards people indicates what we really believe about God. If we want God's favor in our lives, if we want God's favor as his church, don't treat people with favoritism. Show no partiality. If we do, it means that we believe in a, in a, in a limited God. But I believe in an unlimited God that shows no partiality. Second thing, verses two, uh, verses two through through four here. Let's read it first, and then I'll and I'll explain what James is doing. I, I mentioned in his little sermonette here, he gives the instruction. He gives the main point in verse one. Verse two, he starts to give us an illustration. Okay, look at verse 2. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, comes up in the church, and a poor man in shabby clothes, and again, don't, if you're dressed a little, you know, whatever, right? You're kind of the point this morning. Shabby clothes also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who's wearing fine clothing and bow ties, and you say, sit here and have a good place, well, you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? That's important. Okay? The judgment piece. Because again, as Peter talks about, God is the ultimate judge. Right? And so we, we don't get the ability to do that. And so, as a good preacher, after instructing the people to show no partiality, he's giving a vivid illustration. He's giving a vivid illustration. The text literally reads, gold-fingered, brilliantly clothed, and shabby clothing. This, 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 the man that walked into the assembly had multiple rings on his fingers, fine clothing, was often bright and flashy, sometimes with silver sewn into the fabric, so it glistened in the sunlight. I googled this week, most expensive suit. We got preachers in sneakers. I thought we should look at pastors in suits. Most expensive suit. I found a suit made from a blend of cashmere wool and silk. You'll never see me wearing this thing because it'd be way too hot. I'd sweat through this thing. Containing over 480 half-carat diamonds taking more than 800 hours to design and stitch. That's a lot of time. 
it sells for $890,500. Any bids? But I want you to think about something. Suppose someone came in here next Sunday wearing this suit. Do you think they would stand out? Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, they would stand out. Somebody wears a tie into this place. They stand out. I've already mentioned, yeah, I mean, Carlos, you you stand out. What kind of tie is that? Is it Christmas? I don't know. It's a tuba. That's cute. Steven over here has got a Lego bow tie for Mother's Day that I've already mentioned a couple times, right? You stand out, right? You stand out. In contrast, how would you feel? How would you feel if a person came in the doors wearing the only set of clothes that they owned? That may be happening. That may be happening. The word for shabby means vile, filthy, tattered, torn clothing. James points out, given a choice, we're prone to show partiality to the man sporting some bling. The 480 half-carat diamonds that walk up in here. I hope, no, I hope you don't actually. If you're going to spend $890,000 on a suit, I've got a building that you can invest in. So talk to me before you do it, okay? Talk to me. And verse 3 uses the phrase, and if you pay attention, which means to gaze upon, it's easy to turn attention away from the glory of the Lord to the material splendor of someone's clothing, of someone's car, of someone's status. And to the finely dressed, we'd say, hey, sit here in a good place. Sit here in a good place. While you say to the poor man, you stand over there, you sit down at my feet. The flashy guy gets the best seat, gets the best seat, which in our case would be the back row, right? Those are the most sought after seats in the house, right? While the, while the others get the floor, while the others get the floor, a, a great, a great visual of this for me is a church down in Boston in the Italian district. If you've ever done the Freedom Trail in Boston, which I highly recommend, it's a phenomenal day. It's a fun day. You, you get to go into a church where it, back in the day, you would, have, you would have reserved for you and your family a little cubby with four walls and benches all around it. And that was your family's seat. You didn't have to come and worry about somebody taking your seat like I see this morning. We've got some people sitting in some different spots, and you're throwing me all off this morning, Browns, okay? Like, you're throwing me all off this morning, some of you, okay? So you need to repent and make it right next Sunday, okay? <clears throat> all right? But, um, but you would have the same, you would have the same cubby, I don't, I just the same, the same little place for your, for your family to go and sit every week. That would be... That would be the Benson Cubby. That would be the Carlson Cubby, right? And, and all of those things. And then upstairs in the balcony, they have benches. They have benches. 
for, for a couple reasons. Number one, for overflow, right? For those that didn't, weren't, weren't regulars that may be visiting, but also for those that were poor, for those that didn't have status, that still wanted to come into the assembly, they could go upstairs so that they didn't associate with the people downstairs. Now, can you imagine a time? Can you imagine a time? Could you picture a time where the church was that divided, that cut off, that rigid, where your family came and sat in four walls while you experienced worship service. There was no, there was no, mom, can I go sit with my friends over there? There, there was no crossover. There was no, but, but that, but that was the practice. That was the practice. And James here is writing, teaching against this. Show no partiality. Show no partiality, okay? Um, because when we, when we practice partiality, in essence, again, we're setting ourselves up as the judges. Taking God's job of judging away from Him. And here's a newsflash. He doesn't need any help running the world. Some of you are trying. But check out verse 4. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? This verse has the idea of separating people into, into distinct categories. And one reason they were favoring the rich man is they thought he could increase their offerings or would do something special for them. And so their motives were all messed up. All messed up. This is one of the reasons that your pastors and and I think uh, your, your pastors at least, me and Ian and Dylan, we have no idea who gives what around here. And, and that's a practice for me. Why? Because I don't want to treat you differently based on what you give. I don't want to know. I don't want to know. So I assume none of you give. <laughs> and that you all need Jesus. So that I just, so that I just love you unconditionally unconditionally it's not it's not about that and you know what when I stopped worrying about Sunday offerings and stopped worrying about giving and stopped worrying about tithing and stopped worrying about keeping people based on what status I thought they might be or weren't or, or what have you God started taking care of the finances it's amazing what happens when we stop doing so anyway let's keep going I found this fascinating in his on in his autobiography Gandhi described the time that he considered converting to Christianity. Because he saw in the teachings of Jesus the solution to the system which was dividing the people of India. So one Sunday, he decided to attend services at a nearby church and talk to a minister about becoming a Christian. Awesome! However, when he entered the sanctuary, the usher refused to give him a seat suggested he go worship with his own people. Gandhi left the church, never returned, and he later wrote, if Christians have such differences also, I might as well remain a Hindu. And he later said, I love your Christ. It's your Christians I have issue with. Family, if we want God's favor, we can't treat people with favoritism. So, after giving... The opening instruction, the main point of his sermon here in verses 1 through 13, moving to an illustration, he gives an explanation. 
He gives an explanation. Look at verses, look at verses six through um, six through nine. But if you dishonored the poor man, if you excuse me, five five through nine, five through eight. Woo, sorry. Listen, my beloved brothers, has has God has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which He has promised to those who love Him? I want you to notice something here. But have, have but you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality. You are committing sin and are convicted by the laws as transgressors. What did Jesus do when he was asked a question? He would respond either with a story or a question. And here we have the half-brother of Jesus asking some questions to explain his point, to prove his point. In order to explain himself, he appeals to personal experiences and challenges us to let Scripture be our standard. We see the affectionate appeal. Listen. An urgent request. Exhibiting earnestness, James asks four lively questions to get us to see the contradictions that reside in each and every one of us. Has God not chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? The obvious answer here would have been yes. Yes. Why? Because the poor needed God. They needed the provision of God. They recognized their need for God. We are so rich in our culture that the biggest barrier to evangelism and faith today is that we've become our own God. We don't need someone to provide for us. We don't need provision. We're making it happen ourselves. The second question he asks, are not the rich ones, are not the rich the ones who oppress you? Yes. So he's asking these obvious questions. Are, 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 are the ones who drag you, and, and the ones who drag you into court? Yes. Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Yes. And so after appealing to personal experience, he turns to Scripture. Look at verse 8 again. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. A couple things I want to tell you here from James's explanation. Number one, let love be your law. Let love be your law. We're going to talk about this in a little bit. You, you, could, you could even say let mercy be your, let compassion be your law. Let love, I, I, I summarized it all with love. Because we see it in verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. This is a direct quote from Leviticus 19, which was also referenced by Jesus in Matthew 22. The reason this is called the royal law is because King Jesus reinforced it. He reinforced it. He backed it up. He gave it, he gave it even more depth. Galatians 5.14 says, for, if the whole, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The biggest truth I want you to wrap your mind around today is this. It is impossible, everybody say impossible, to truly love your neighbor and show favoritism. You can't do it. It's impossible to fulfill the words, love your neighbor as yourself, and show favoritism. It's impossible. 
second truth we see here. Look at verses 9 through 11. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Now, every person in the room ought to feel a way about verse 9. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. We're not as good as we think we are. Verse 11, for he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. If you do any of this, church, hear this you're a sinner and need Jesus so I don't know about the rest of you in this room but I can sit up here and confess to you I'm a sinner and need Jesus join me in living as if you need Jesus what would it look like if each and every one of us based on the scriptures that we read Stop justifying ourselves and saying, well, look at all the good we're doing. But instead, we're so bothered by our sin that we pressed into the Jesus that we need for everyday life. The second thing that James is trying to explain here is let Scripture be the standard which is huge. Not how you feel. Not what you think. Not what everyone else is doing. Let Scripture be your standard. Let Scripture be your standard. We tend to... Y'all okay? All right, let's finish this. Should have worn a short sleeve shirt. I knew I was going to get fired up too. Okay. <laughs> we tend to trivialize our own wrongdoings, thinking our sins don't smell as bad as the sins of others. Some of us excuse our judgmental hearts, thinking it's no big deal. I wonder if we secretly congratulate ourselves for not committing certain big sins while shrugging, shrugging off our little stuff. It's easy to think, because we keep most of God's commands, that it's okay to violate a few small ones. Right? But actually, to break one link in the chain is to break the whole chain. It's tough. It's hard. But it's true. What's the harm in ignoring people that we think are different, strange, or weird? Some of you are really weird. <laughs> and I can't ignore you. Let's get real. Some of us look down on people from other races or countries while denying that we're racist. Or maybe we separate according to gender, or generation, vocation, or location, popularity, personality, or even politics. Or perhaps we judge based on background or disability or simply because someone's not in our own tribe, our own clique. Others of us, y'all did not know what you were getting this morning. Others of us, act like spiritual snobs when we see someone struggling with something that we just don't struggle with. 
some of us hear about what God is doing in other parts of the world through missionaries, and we just don't care. It doesn't burn a passion in us that God is moving and doing something. Let me share this with you. And I pray it floored you. The, I, pray it, I pray it floors you the way that it floored me this week. According to a recent Gallup poll, for the first time in more than two decades, more people are saying race is the most pressing issue facing our country. Let's face it. Let's face it. The evangelical church is often the most racially segregated place in America. Now, <laughs> nope. Don't miss how gross partiality is to the God who gave his son to save the whole world. Discrimination is not just ill-advised or inconsiderate or bad etiquette. In verses 9 and 10, partiality is a perversion of justice and is referred to as sin. And those who do it are the transgressors who are guilty of breaking the entire law of God. Racism is not just a social problem in our world. It's a sin problem within. And it doesn't make sense to me. When everything happened 11, 12 months ago and flipped the, the, the country and the, the world upside down with George, George Floyd last summer, it didn't make sense to me. I grew, up in, I grew up in North Carolina. Like, it just didn't make sense to me. Things looked much different. We're much more inclusive. It didn't make sense to me. The fact that people were questioning where the church stood on race blew me away. Because if you have to ask, you have to ask, are we reading the same Bible? And so, and so there was a piece of me that was offended by the question. But let's deal with that for a second. Because it's as if James is reading his readers' minds and says, okay, I might not think the best of some people, but at least I'm not a murderer. Notice that James equates partiality with murder, much like Jesus did in Matthew chapter 5 when he said to hate someone in our hearts is to commit murder. So when we diminish someone by reducing their value through insult, slander, gossip, racial statements, character assassination, or treating them as individual, indiv invisible, excuse me, it's like we're committing murder. So to continue his argument, James is anticipating someone saying that they've never committed the terrible sin of adultery. If we keep nine of the Ten Commandments and break one, we're guilty as a lawbreaker before God as if we had broken all of them. God's law is not a set of disconnected commandments, but rather a unified whole. And so the sin of showing partiality is just as serious as murder or adultery is what James is saying. So before leaving these two verses, or these verses, I see two principles that will help us live on mission. The first one is this. Utilize questions. Questions are important. Utilize them. James uses four questions to make his point. One of the most effective ways to witness is to simply ask questions. There's a book called Ta Tactics 
uh, subtitled A Game Plan for Discussing Your Christian Convictions. Greg Kukul suggests following the Columbo approach to evangelism in an unassuming way, Detective Columbo, wearing his old trench coat, had a way of asking questions that was very disarming. And his classic line when leaving a room was to say, oh, just one more thing. Here are some of the ways you can utilize questions. Do you mind if I ask you a question? My favorite one. What do you mean by that? What do you mean by that? What do you mean by that? If you don't understand, ask. Don't assume. Don't assume. What do you mean by that? Another one. How did you come to that conclusion? Well, Twitter. Well, we should talk. Lastly, have you ever considered, have you ever considered, the second thing that I want to point out to you that will help us live on mission, use the Ten Commandments. Use the Ten Commandments. This may seem elementary, felt board, Sunday school, but, but, but essential. Use the Ten Commandments. One of the purposes of the commandments is to show us that we can't keep them. Romans 3.20, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Ray Comfort is an expert at this approach. When speaking to someone who thinks he's a good person, you could ask if he's ever lied before. And then follow up with, what do you call someone who tells a lie? You could then ask if he's ever stolen something and follow it up with, what do you call someone who steals? Then go to the passage and show that if we've broken one commandment, we've broken them all. Because we're sinners, we need a Savior. Lastly, err on the side of love. Err on the side of mercy. The only time to look down on someone is if you're helping them up. The only time to look down on someone is if you're helping them up. Err on the side of love. Err on the side of mercy. Has this person really given you a reason not to love them? Re really? Have they really given you a reason not to love them, or have you just been oversensitive? Give people the benefit of the doubt. You don't know what their day has looked like. You don't know how they're limping into church or running into church or, or doing cartwheels into church. You don't know. You don't know. You don't know what that bagger at Hannaford is dealing with that rolled her eyes at you yesterday. You don't know. Love her. Pat her on the back. Say, I hope your day gets better. Can I go buy you a Roma Joe's? No, that's for me. Okay. But you get it. Err on the side of love. Err on the side of mercy. And then lastly, James, verses 12 and 13 he wraps his message up by giving an application. So speak and so act. Get that. So speak and so act. Both hearing, doing, speaking, acting. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. After instructing, and like a good preacher giving 
illustration and explanation, he moves to application. Watch your words and adjust your actions. Remember, judges will be judged. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged. Notice, we're to speak and we're to act. We're to speak and we're to act. So I want to camp on the, on the phrase law of liberty. When we look at the law, these things should happen. We should see ourselves as sinners who have broken God's laws, right? We're sinners. We flee to the cross of Jesus so that we can be forgiven. We're free because we've been pardoned and set at freedom, set at liberty. True freedom is freedom to obey God and to do what He pleases. So we need to watch what we say and watch what we do because we'll be judged accordingly. will be judged accordingly. Jesus said it like this in Matthew chapter 7, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Make mercy your message. Make compassion your message. This passage ends with a message of mercy in the last verse. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy is the aspect of God's character that causes him to minister to the miserable. It causes him to minister to the miserable. And, and I love the folks, I love the folks, and I'm not, I'm, I'm not, if this is you, I love you. But I love the folks that try to excuse this away by saying, mercy's not my gift. Like, that's the freedom to just judge. It might not be your gift, but guess what? It's a command. <laughs> so you might stink at it, but you're still supposed to do it. Man, I haven't been this uncomfortable in the pulpit in a long time. It was nice having a few of you here. I hope your next church doesn't preach the Bible so that you'll stay. Jesus says it like this in Matthew 5. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. When we're merciful, we receive mercy. And we're to be merciful because we receive the mercy, the compassion. And this kind of mercy triumphs, which means, it, which means to exalt over or against. And, 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 and in our finite minds, let me give you this picture. To win. Mercy wins over judgment. Compassion wins over judgment. Compassion wins over judgment. Again, I'll say it one more time. Never look down on anybody unless you're helping them up. Failure to show mercy reveals a failure to understand mercy. You know the hardest place to show mercy is when you haven't been there. The hardest place to show mercy is when you haven't been there. When you haven't been there. When you haven't been there. Jesus was the ultimate model of ministering with mercy while not giving preference to people. Think about the woman at the well. Think about the person being, being lowered through the roof. 
Listen to how Jesus introduced one of his parables in Luke 18. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. The Pharisee prayed about how great he was, focusing on a number of external things while claiming to be better than the tax collector. The tax collector stood far off and wouldn't even look to heaven when he prayed. God be merciful to me, a sinner. This sinner was shown mercy and went home justified while the haughty man man was humbled. If you want to go home justified, you too must admit that you're a sinner and ask for his mercy. Believing that it's embracing. Why mercy? Because he showed it to us first. Compassion. Jesus looked down on us to help us up. And let's do the same for others. So as the worship team comes, I want to end by praying for you. But here's how I want to pray for you, okay? There's two ways. So don't, don't, don't tune out yet, and you may want to write this down. Okay? Here's some ways that we can get off the sidelines when it comes to partiality. Number one, repent of wrong attitudes actions, words. Repent of being offended by questions and instead invite questions. Celebrate questions. Celebrate people living with boundaries. I was coaching a softball game the other night. And uh, we were getting beat and then all of a sudden I changed pitchers. And we came back. And we were winning 12 to 9, going into the last inning. All we needed was three outs, and we win a game that we shouldn't have won. And our pitcher was on fire. And she came to me, and she said, Coach, my shoulder hurts. I can't pitch anymore. Put me at first base. I looked at her three times and said, Are you sure? Are you positive? Three outs away. And, by, and with how this kid was pitching, we, she, she could have done that in about eight to ten pitches. And I thought, your shoulder's going to be fine with just eight to ten pitches. Come on, kid. But she stood her ground. And she said, I can't pitch. I said, okay, go to first base. We lost the game 14 to 12. Who knows if she pitched if we'd have won? I think we would have. But that next practice, I called her over in front of all the assistant coaches and I said, I got two things to tell you. Number one, I'm sorry for trying to push you to pitch. Number two, never stop advocating for yourself. This is a seventh grade kid. Never stop knowing your limitations. I said, because these other three assistant coaches would do well to learn from you in knowing your limitations. I've got that down. (laughs) Why are you laughing? (laughs) Repent of wrong attitudes, words, and actions. Paul David Tripp says this, we cannot grieve what we do not see. We cannot confess what we have not grieved. 
We cannot turn what we haven't confessed. Let's own our pride, our partiality. Let's see the sin in our own hearts here. And the command and the instruction that James gives show no partiality. Confess it. Let's turn from it. No more, no longer, certainly not here. Secondly, so repent of wrong attitudes. Secondly, let's listen and love. Let's pray and let's go out of our way. Me, Ian, and Dylan were at a conference this week where they kept talking about let's disadvantage ourselves for the sake of the gospel. Let's go out of our way to connect with someone who looks different from us this week. Let's enter into awkward conversations instead of avoiding them like the plague by intentionally moving towards someone with a different background, with a different upbringing. So let's repent of wrong attitudes, words, actions, and let's listen and love. Can I pray for us? God, today, as I read through the book of James, I can't help but think about Jesus' words in John 17 as He's praying to you. For us, for the church that was to come, God, may they be one as you and I are one. And God, we can have differences. We can have different interests. We can have different ways of worship, preferences of worship. We, we, can, ha we can have differences. But God, my prayer today is that our differences don't affect the gospel work in our lives. God, that our differences don't impact how we love people. That our differences don't impact the furtherance of the gospel. People meeting you. People spending eternity with you. God, that our differences don't break us. But that, God, we can see value in the differences instead of be offended by them. That we can see value and appreciate instead of being turned off and away. And so, God, my prayer is that we would be models in this. That the church that you loved and that you sent your son to die for would set the tone in mercy because mercy triumphs over judgment. God, that we would model this before a world that's seeing this as a major issue. That we would love that we would openly embrace all people. With the hopes of seeing them come into relationship with you. And so God, we confess. We repent. But God, we also commit to loving, to listening, to caring 
to seeing our need for you first and of utmost importance. In Jesus' name I pray.